Welcome my wife, Wendy, who you don't see up here very often, but she is going to read our scripture today. Mark 5, 1 through 20. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were were amazed. Thank you, God. Thank you for your word and that it is life. Yeah, And Lord, we pray that you just continue to be with us, that today that you would make this come alive to us, that you would uh, bring uh, experiences to mind, memories to mind, thoughts to mind, as directed by your Spirit, that each one of us walked in, walk away today with a uh, sense of your presence and an invitation to your love and your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, as I said last week, uh, we uh, have been discussing the real Jesus, looking verse by verse through the book of Mark, and we decided last week to skip over this passage because it just didn't feel like a good working title to say, The Exorcist Meets Mom. But today, we deal with this topic. We're going to go back to this passage and spend some time on it, and we get to see the de- most detailed, longest account of an exorcism, of the dealing with the, uh, of dealing with the demonic in all of the Bible, and in this process we're going to see the complexity of evil. We're going to see uh, how evil works in our lives. We're going to understand a little bit more how we can defeat evil, and at the end we're going to talk about some tips of ways that we can respond to this passage and this invitation that Jesus is giving us today, and remain healthy in our approach to it. So, but let's begin today with the obvious. In this passage, there are demons, right? And so often we may hear, and you may even be thinking, well, you don't believe in demons, do you? After all, you know, that was just 
then and, and, and we have so much more knowledge now. We know that a lot of the issues that were blamed on demons from seizures to mental illness to other things were really, we just, we know the physiological, psychological causes of those and we're, we're more enlightened and know that that's really not true, right? And I want to first acknowledge very clearly that if we look at history honestly, it's true. There have been a lot of times that people have attributed things to demonic that was superstitious, that wasn't right, that was not real. And there's no way we can give an honest reading of, of, of history and not say that there have been abuses in this area. There's no way we can even give an honest history of our current modern day and say that there have not been abuses in this area. It's, it's just in your face. But let me turn the question back to you in this way. Why not believe in demons? You're here, so most of you probably at some level agree and believe that there's a God, right? In fact, 80% of Americans believe that there's a God or or more, believe that there's a God, and about 80% of them believe that in some way this God is good even. So why is it illogical then to think that there are spirit beings who would also be evil, especially in light of the evil in the world around us. If we believe in a God, a spirit being who is good, why not evil? You know, I can't think of any reason why not to believe in that other than it, it yields this simplistic way to dismiss a very uncomfortable reality that we don't want to deal with. And it allows us to uh, say of ourselves, we're more enlightened and we feed our egos. But really, if you put those two together, there's no logical, no logical basis to believe that there are not demons if you believe in God. But we could go even further. We could look at this simplistic argument, the argument that says that the people back then were too simplistic, were more enlightened, and we know better, and they didn't understand the difference between uh, seizures and, and, and mental illness and all those kinds of things and demons. And while, again, that is obviously true of some, maybe many ancient people, and it's still even obviously true of many uh, historical Christians in their views uh, throughout history of God. It isn't true of Jesus. And it isn't true of the Bible. And it isn't even true of the, the viewpoint of the Jews of Jesus' time. Their view of evil was much more complex, even, in fact, much more complex than many of our views of evil today. Matthew 4.24 is just one example. Let's read it together. It says, News about Jesus spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering with severe pain, which could include both emotional and physical pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, epilepsy, things like that, the, the paralyzed, and he healed them. Did you, did you catch that? The Bible actually delineates the difference between insanity, between mental illness, between epilepsy, seizures, and other things like that, and between disease and between that and demon possession. It doesn't lump them all into one category. Their view 
was not simplistic, not unenlightened like so many people argue today. Nor was it, in spite of all the abuses that we can see in history, nor was it all throughout history either in a major portion of the church. There's an English pastor named Richard Baxter in 1670. He preached a sermon titled this, What are the best preservatives of melancholy and overmuch sorrow? Like that title? Should we use that next week? It's basically a sermon on depression. And in this sermon, uh, Baxter gives four biblical reasons back in 1670 for depression. He says, first of all, it could be a physiological basis. Maybe you've overworked and you're undernourished and, and the result then, what you need to do to solve it then is you need uh, healthy eating. You need rest. You need recreation. You need Sabbath in your life. He said the second biblical cause could be moral. You have not dealt with, you may be, tra- be depressed because you haven't dealt with guilt and shame appropriately by, by both giving and receiving the forgiveness of God and that becomes the solution to depression then. Third issue of depression may be a mental basis. Maybe, maybe you've experienced too much stress, too much grief, too much loss in your life and you've, you've gotten to the point where you're just extremely weak emotionally, where you're burned out. And then he says the biblical solution to that is simply support and love of a community of friends around you. And the fourth reason he gives could be a demonic root. And the solution to that is surrender to God, prayer, and the word of God. You see, if we're really honest, the biblical view of evil is actually more complex, less simplistic than many of our modern day views. Many of our modern day views are centered in the fact that, uh, that, that it's physiological. So if you have a problem, if someone is acting out, if they're not behaving well, you give them a pill, right? You medicate it. And there's other places where the, the approach to evil is more centered on psychological. So the solution, in, if it's all psychological in our world today, is counseling. You go see a counselor, you talk about it, and, 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 you, and you get better. And there's some people today who have a more pharisaical and more moralistic view of evil than even the Bible has. They will say to you, if you have a problem, if you're depressed, go read the Bible, find a passage that prescribes exactly what to do, memorize it, confess it, do it, and everything will be okay. Now, How many of you have had enough life experience and enough struggle with evil and problems and sin and difficulties in your life to know that counseling didn't necessarily fix it all for you? How many of you struggled enough to know that meds didn't fix it all for you? How many of you have been intentional enough in your faith that you've realized that memorizing, confessing, trying to do the right thing that the Bible says didn't make everything okay. You see, as much as we want to think we're more enlightened than the people in the Bible age, the reality is that many of us have a much more simplistic, narrow view of evil than even the Bible had. And we we see in Jesus these four things And we see him painting for us a picture of a dynamic interaction of those things going on that's that's just too hard to fully explain. You can't template solutions 
to demonization. You can't template solutions to what's going to make you move past evil in your life, in your world, around you. And why is this so? Why is this so? I mean, beyond the the, the fact that we all know that human beings and human relationships are so complex that it's impossible to really be reductionist in our thinking in that realm, there's also in the Bible a theological base to this. And this is simply this, that we're created in His image. We're designed for relationship with Him. And God, when He inspired the Bible, wrote it for us, made no attempt to detail a prescription for every single evil problem, every single solution that you needed in your life. And why did he do this? I think it's simply because of this. that He designed us to be dependent on him. He designed us, his word says, to be led by his Holy Spirit. And that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth and He will reveal the nuances of how the Scripture applies to this situation. And we may experience something else that seems similar, but He'll reveal and it'll be different in how we apply it to that. You see, the Bible's whole intent, the fact that it refers to the Bible as the inspired living Word of God, the whole intent of the Bible is to lead us into dynamic relationship with Jesus, the one who inspired it. It's not to give us a list of rules first. It's relationship first, not rules first. And when we as Americans, uh, like most Americans, live in a reductionist view of evil, leaving out one important factor, the demonic, we will find ourselves all too often defeated by evil. So the Bible talks about demons in a different way. It talks about it in terms of demons, the devil, evil spirits, Satan, Beelzebub. And a lot of times it talks about all those terms and it's lumping them together in this idea of these evil spiritual beings that are fighting against us and fighting against God. And sometimes the names are actually used for the person, Satan, who is the leader of this demonic force of of, of beings. But, but it also goes on to that and it talks about the reality that, that demons can attach to individuals and they can also attach to cultural systems and systems of power. Let me ask this. Have you ever faced someone who in every area of their life is so amazingly intelligent, so amiable, so wonderful, so like us, and yet in, in one area of their life where, where they're constantly experiencing defeat or they're hurting others on a constant basis, you try to talk to them about it. It's like facing a blank wall or even worse. It's, they're just completely intransigent. They're, they're com- maybe even aggressive in the issue. And it just makes absolutely no sense. You see, one of the teachings of the Bible is that when we look at this complex view of evil, not just demonic, but the whole thing, that, that demons amplify problems we have in other areas of our, of our life. It's, it's almost like we try to solve problems sometimes and, we're, and it's like a double locked door where we're dealing with one lock and not even paying attention to the fact that there's a second lock also locking that. We wonder why we can't be free. The Bible talks about how actions make room for the demonic in our life. 
Here's just a quick quick list, and you don't have to write all these scriptures down. I'll put them in the after the message this week if you want to look them up. First Timothy and James uh, 4 talk about how pride opens our lives to the possibility of the demonic being active in our life. Ephesians 4 and 2 Corinthians 1 talk about how unforgiveness and bitterness in our life can open the door to the demonic. And that's one of the reasons why so often when we, when we face huge trauma, we face huge pain, we face huge abuse in our life, we almost need to pray and seek God more because the process of getting to forgiveness isn't an easy thing, is it? When we've been traumatized, when, we, when we've been abused, it's really hard to get to the place of forgiveness. And while we're processing those feelings, bringing them to God, praying that he keeps us free, it's, it opens us up to bitterness. It opens us up to unforgiveness on a long-term basis, which opens us up to a demonic influence. The preceding verses to this in Ephesians 4 uh, go even further. They talk about how unwholesome talk, how, how slander, about how talking in a way irresponsibly that doesn't build people up can lead to damage and lead to the possibility of a, a demonic influence reinforcing the pain and problems in our life, evil in our life. James 3 talks about bitter envy and selfish ambition and our inability to face our heart honestly when we're envious and have selfish ambition as as something that opens us up to that influence. 1 Peter 5 talks about a lack of alertness or or a diligence in being self-controlled and not Not self-controlled in the way that we think about, I'm just going to make sure I don't sin. This is talking about self-control in our ability to stay focused on trusting God and not living life full of anxiety. That anxiety leads us to a place of being open to those issues being harassed and amplified by the demonic influence. Revelation 12 puts and summarizes the, the, the ways, the, the way this comes to us as, as accusing thoughts, a, accusing us of, of, of things we've done and, and preventing us from really receiving the love of God and the forgiveness of God, accusing us that God is not who He says He really is, and, and it's accusing thoughts. And, and if you think about it, doesn't this, doesn't this also help explain some of the intransigence of social problems, the inability for things to change. Have you ever thought of this? How can it be that some cultures have such a long history of evil, stuff that's reprehensible that you just can't imagine? How can they do this? And yet when you go into that culture and you meet people and you spend time with them, they have the same desires they're kind, they're loving, they're, they're just like us. I have a friend who's spent many years in Afghanistan over the last decade as a missionary. And, and the people are just absolutely wonderful, and yet that culture has been so fraught with conflict, not just the last 10 years, but for decades, centuries, and bitter conflict. The Palestinians and the Israel, Israelites, the, the Serbs and the Croats, we can even think of cultures within the U.S., subcultures maybe even within our community that we look at and go, how can this be? Demonic forces, the Bible teaches, do inhabit, can inhabit cultural systems. And, and it just becomes too hard for me when I, when I walk through life, as much as, I, as much as you know, this seems so mystical and distant to us in some ways, it, it's just too hard to, 
to make the leap to blame it all on inequitable distribution of resources or bad social systems or propaganda that a culture is this way. The text, if we could summarize one of the main points, is simply saying this today. You can't attribute everything in terms of human mistakes and evil to simple mistakes and choices in life. If you could, then why can two siblings from the same family, evil or good, turn out so different coming from the same family? You see, evil can't be solved without the power of God and the recognition of the reality that there is this, at least this fourth element. There is a spiritual battle going on and the need for prayer. But we could go a little deeper. Let's go a little deeper in how the pattern of evil works in our lives. The English translations, including this translation, uh, translate it demon-possessed. And when that term comes up, what do you think of? You think of The Exorcist. You think of you think of these really scary movies where people are completely out of control and just pu- fully fully under the control of 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 Satan. And yet, the word actually used here is just a simple verb form to be demonized. And the difference between maybe what we experience on a daily basis and this man at the tombs that Jesus heals is a simple difference of um, quantity and quality. How intense, how deeply embedded, how much demonic influence there is. If we don't settle this question that I'm about to say, or this thought that I'm about to say, then we'll miss everything about this. The fact is that every one of us deals with demonization. Even Jesus himself dealt with demonization. Because demonization at its lowest level is simply accusing thoughts. It's temptation. Jesus dealt with demonization when he was tempted in the wilderness. He dealt with it in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'm sure he dealt with it many other places where Satan and the enemy would come to him and give accusing thoughts and attack him and try to get him in weak moments. The difference between that and demon possession is quality and quantity. And here the text says that this man, when asked, was possessed by a legion. Well, you know, it doesn't really matter, but a legion during that day was three to 7,000 people, depending on the time and era within the Roman Empire and the location of, of, the, of the legion within the Roman Empire and what it did. You know, but here's, let's look at the results of this possession in the man. This man lived in the tombs, it says, verse 3, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons off of his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. We see this this guy somehow in this process of being demonized, gaining something that maybe he wanted all along, the sense of almost superhuman power. And yet it leads to living a desolate life. And it would be easy for us to, to relegate this story to the story of the Bible. My wife, Wendy, while she was working on her master's degree in counseling, worked in an adolescent psych facility. It was a lockdown facility. And there was one unit on that facility that was used for people first coming in, uh, especially if they were going from, through detox from drugs. 
And one evening there, while she was working there, she wasn't actually on the unit, she was on a different unit, thank God, um, there was an average-sized teen. And this average-sized teen managed to go to the industrial hospital strength, prison strength, metal encased doors, locked, and tear them off the hinges and get out. This unit was the tough unit. It was the unit that was staffed by almost entirely guys over six foot, over 220 pounds. And they were all taught in safe takedown. They did it on a regular basis because we all know that when people are either on drugs or going off drugs that they can do crazy stuff. And we all know from science and study of it that they can also have this almost superhuman strength. But that night, Wendy remembers talking to some of the people on that unit. And, and this was one of their phrases that she remembers that's burned into her mind. It was, it was, it was their phrase was the guy got out and normally they would pursue to try to get him back, but they didn't. And they said, basically, let the police find him. May the force be with the police. Even the staff that night that were not Christians were talking about the fact that this was something beyond physiological and psychological. They had never experienced anything like this. And remember, these guys experienced it on a daily basis because that was their job. And maybe it's not... Maybe, maybe our effect of demonization in people's life isn't, isn't superhuman power. Maybe it's seductive charm. Maybe it's an ability to make money. Maybe it's an ability to charm and act. And, and maybe it's a million other things that, that, that it could be. But the point is when we, when we allow room for demons, the devil in our life, we do oftentimes get something we want, but we lose a sense of who we really are. We can look at secular literature and see this. And how many remember the name Faust? Remember what that means. Faust is a German legend that was written up many, many years ago. Rembrandt actually did an etching of Faust in 1650, if my notes are right. And since that time, playwrights, authors, cinematic people have re visited this whole theme, the Faustian theme. Basically, Faust sold his soul to the devil for unlimited knowledge and unlimited pleasure. There's a, a recent uh, version of that, uh, recent in the last century, called Damn Yankees. It was first a Broadway play in the 1950s, a film in 1958, and they did a Broadway remake of it in the 1990s. And it's a story about Joe, Joe Boyd, a gentleman in his mid-50s, and this is how the stories usually go. He's in his mid-50s, and he has this desire. He just wishes he could play Major League Ball for the Washington Senators. Who's old enough to remember the Washington Senators were actually a baseball team? Okay. Um, and he gets his dream in exchange for selling his soul to the devil. And as you watch the play fold on, the cost to him becomes greater and greater. Thankfully, in this story, there's a, there's a positive end and he becomes free. But uh, who of us, who of us would say yes to power and influence if we knew it was going to cost us our marriage, our family, and many of our friends? None of us would, right? Who of us would say yes to pornography and sexual indiscretion if we knew that it was going to lead to the devastation, to the to the 
even the angst and the anger within us because the thrill just gets numb and it's no longer satisfying and leaves us desolate and hollow in our relationships and our life. And You see, the Faustian outline of the Bible's teaching on demonization is this. If you make something more important to the meaning of your life, more important to your sense of significance, more important to your sense of who you are and your happiness than knowing and following God, then you've made a pact for that thing with that thing you desire most in exchange for your soul. What's the real thing that you get up in the morning for? What's that card and the house of cards for your life that if you pull it out, everything falls apart? Is it something other than God? What's the real thing that makes you feel happy? You see, we deceive ourselves. I even heard somebody say this this, in the last couple weeks. They said, I am not sure about religion. I'm all into control of my life. We deceive ourselves into thinking we can control our own lives when in the the reality is whatever you are seeking as the main thing in your life is what really controls you. And you've made a pact with it. The Bible puts it this way. It says you're either a slave to sin or a slave to Christ. And there's nothing in between. It's one or the other. And it's only in slavery to Christ that we truly find freedom. We truly find meaning. We truly find love. So, you know, let's look at it a little further. If you make the main thing in your life business or financial success, or or maybe that doesn't relate to you. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's something about your family or your dream home or your, or something else in your life. If whatever you make the main thing, but let's just say it's business or financial success, success, likely it's likely that you'll actually achieve that. Why? Because whatever you make the main thing in your life, you're going to pay a higher price for. You're going to be willing to work harder, longer, faster to, to, to go after that main thing that's controlling your life than anything else. You're going to be willing to climb the ladder, even if it means climbing over other people. And yet, you'll be a slave to that goal. And the cost in your life will be extremely high. In business, financial success, you'll trample on people as you climb that ladder and you'll make enemies, you'll ruin your social life, you'll find yourself lonely and alone at the top with no one to share the joy with. You'll be tempted because of that main goal to cut ethical corners and that may come back and haunt you someday. Your health will pay a price because you're not concerned about your relational needs or or, or the other needs of your life. You're going to pay the price. You're going to work harder than everybody else. You're going to put your dues in, unlike those people who don't put their dues in. And the price is going to be your health. Um, You're going to pay a price because you're going to put your career, your financial success above your relationships, and your marriage will be 20 years down the line, hollow at best, or maybe it will have been a series of marriages. Because you never learned what it's like to love. And you'll find yourself later on in life having squandered all the opportunities for true love and true happiness. As time goes on, you find yourself more and more enslaved. You find yourself less able to control yourself. You find yourself more often, even when you're on the golf course, you're trying to enjoy yourself out in the boat, you're going to find yourself only thinking about work, only stressed about work. You're going to find yourself driven more and more controlled by it. You're going to be unable, more unable to change as well. 
likelihood is you're going to find yourself a 55-year-old person with the love development of a teenager. And you're going to be unable to love like you want to. Because the reality is, you made this your main goal and you left that behind. And that area of your life never, never developed. In our text it says, the man that they could no longer restrain him. This wasn't something that happened overnight. It happened gradually. Happened over time to the point that it became uncontrollable. The devil doesn't say, make me a partner and I'll make you rich and we'll tread on, and, and in the process we'll tread on the poor and take advantage of them. He doesn't say that because we'll, we won't say yes to that. And yet that's where some of us might be in life. We can't say, this is my time for my career. This is my time to make it financially. My dad never took the time to make it financially and live poor, so this is my time. I'm not going to be like him. And then my family and relationships and God and giving generously will come together, come later. When I get to X point in life, then I'm going to be so generous. When I get to X point in life, then I'm going to take my family on vacations. I'm going to spend time with them. Because it never happens. Even on the generosity side and the giving, you can look at the studies. The wealthier people get, the less generous they are. Typically, according to the studies. Because it's never enough. Because whatever we give our life to will control us. And it becomes hard to change. And you'll end up in the tombs of family-inflicted, self-inflicted family pain and relational desolation. You see, generosity, faithfulness, whatever, it could be other things, they're not situation-specific traits. They're not something we can say, I'll be this later. I'll, do, I'll turn it on and off here. They're character qualities. And character qualities aren't developed at future dates. They're developed now, tomorrow, the next hour, the next minute, every day of our life, in every area of our life, not just in marriage, not just in money. Character, generosity, faithfulness are developed across the board or they're not developed at all. So how do we defeat evil? In this example, we see it's just simply this, running and recognizing and running to the source of power. Verse 6, it says, When we saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. It starts with surrender. James 4 actually elaborates on it more. It says, Because he gives us uh, more grace, that is why the Scripture says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In verse 7 especially, Submit yourselves then to God. Submission to God. It's the starting place for everything in relationship with God. And not only the starting place, it's the foundation. It's even the core of the action for what the Scripture says next. It says resist. Submission is the first act of resisting. So resist the devil and he will flee from you. And it goes on from there as well. In our culture, when we think about it, not just on an individual basis, what are the spiritual strongholds we all fight? Just to illustrate this further, this last week a number of the staff were at the Vineyard Great Lakes uh, Region Conference, which was hosted here at Vineyard Columbus. 
and we're a part of the vineyard. And Rich Nathan actually spoke on this, and I won't repeat all the stuff, but I'm just going to look at a couple of things he said that he proposes as strongholds in our culture. And the first one, he says, is covenant-breaking because the main thing for us is pleasure. And therefore, we are a culture of covenant-breakers. We see it in marriage, don't we? How many of you come from a broken family? You know, I mean, a lot of us do, right? We see it in marriage all the time. We see it in trophy wives and people getting older and and just deciding they don't want to do it anymore. It's not fun anymore. We see it in business. We see it in historical treaties and the government. We see it in political promises. Every political season, I'm going to promise to do this and they don't. It doesn't matter. We are more concerned about our pleasure, our own self-gratification, than we are about keeping covenants. Another one, I think, in our culture is gossip. We find it all over the place, the, the willingness to share things and talk about things that may or may not be true. We may or may not know they're true, but we like talking about them because they're spicy tidbits or we like talking about them because it gives us a sense of leverage and power. We see it in politics. The Zimmerman Martin case in Florida. And I don't, I don't know where that's going to end up in the courts, right? We don't, know all, we don't know all the facts, even as much as the media has reported at this point. But how irresponsible was it before any of the facts were out for people to get up and share stuff? And it was not just irresponsible. It was evil. It was demonic. It stirred crud, right? We can all see that. We see it in church on a regular basis. Uh, Rick Warren of 40 Days of Purpose and Saddleback fame a few years ago was, was accused, and it went viral all over the Internet, was accused of abandoning the orthodox faith of Christianity and becoming a syncretist with Islam and Christianity. And, and, and it was spread all over Facebook and all over the Internet by people, by irresponsible, gossiping Christians. And you know where it started from? He had to go out and defend himself and he had to go out and post stuff all the time. You know where it started? It started by a couple people accusing him of that because there was a small group in his church that was trying to build a relationship with Muslim people who were their neighbors. And so they were getting together as groups with them and they were studying what they really believed. Both groups were talking and dialoguing about that. And it was an attempt to build friendship and relationship to reach Muslims for for Christ. And it was gossip, but it was spread all over Facebook because it must be true because so-and-so shared it. There's this rampant rush to judgment, to innuendo, not truth, in politics to gain power. And it creates such divisiveness. It is a major stronghold in our culture. And as long as it remains so, we will get $2 answers to million-dollar questions that we're facing in our economy and our morality and our government and all the things that we face. We will consistently get $2 answers to million-dollar questions until we learn to be more careful and guard our, guard our hearts and our minds. This speaks right along with who we are as Quest in our community. We talk about being friends with faith. Friends don't say stuff to harm others, to do spicy tidbits. And we have a a value that we, we talk about this way. Live in relationship above differences, even in politics. 
Closing tips and thoughts. This topic of demonization is responded to so wrongly by so many in the church. First, many of us avoid it. We just avoid the topic because it's mystical. It's hard to understand. We're not sure. We don't feel up to understanding it. So we relegate this topic to the clergy. We relegate it to those people who are more spiritual than us. And we leave it there. But Jesus trained his disciples this way. It says it in Luke 9, but it says it in a number of other places. He said in training his disciples, he, did, he, he, he taught them to do three things. It says, preach the gospel, cast out demons, and heal the sick. How are we doing on that? I feel convicted even reading that at times. I don't know about you. Don't you feel a little bit convicted reading that? Reading that? I mean, that's the three simple things Jesus said we as followers of him are to do. It's a challenging question. I think it's a question that should in some way frame our life quest for us to be able to do that. You see, the the point of this is we can't avoid this because the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Paul, the teaching of John, the teaching of James, all throughout the New Testament invites us and instructs us that we all face this issue. We all are asked to engage it and defeat it with Christ through the leading of the Holy Spirit. You see, transformation of our lives and of our community absolutely depends on this being a part of that complex worldview of evil and something we actively do. Second, one of the things that we respond to wrongly about it is we focus way too much on demons. And you hear people getting to this and they, they do all these extensive biblical studies trying to categorize and put tears in place and label everything and figure out all the, all the realm of the demonic and, and they make it almost formulaic and simplistic because religion likes to peg everything. Religion likes to make sure that we can feel competent and we can feel in control instead of living in the complex nature of humanity and evil and God. Third, when we talk about this, many of us experience fear. In fact, if you, if you hear a lot of people talking about spiritual warfare or the demonic in churches, you'll hear them talking about talking about it in this way that almost makes you feel like there's this great cosmic battle going on and the and the result and the end result of it is still in question and we shouldn't venture to to go into this we should be very 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 careful before we actually pray against some of this stuff because we might not do it right or it might be over our heads and it might come back and bite us and yeah it's I mean, it's true. You can look in the Bible and you can see that there are real consequences. I mean, just look at 1 Thessalonians 2.8 and, and you see that uh, Paul talks about the fact that Satan, he says, Satan prevented him from doing something he felt led to do in ministry, to going to a place to minister. And yet Colossians 2 says this, Jesus disarmed the powers and the authorities. He made a public spectacle of them. This is, this is an image, to put, to put this to, to an image, think of a, think of the superstars of basketball of all time, all being magically transformed back to their prime and playing a fifth grade travel, travel team. And being completely merciless. Running the score up. 
Jesus, it says, disarmed and made a public spectacle, triumphing over them by the cross. Romans 8, 8 says this in verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons... And that skips forward in verse 39 and says, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. John, in his whole letter, the first John, is talking about spiritual battle for most of that. In verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4 says this, greater is he, Jesus, through his spirit. He's talking about greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, the demonic forces he's referring to. There is no need for fear. There is no need for alarmist talk. And alarmist talk that causes fear about this topic for us is not of God. So how then should we respond very quickly? The Bible instructs us in at least three things. We'll just summarize three things. It first says, and I'll send out a scripture that tells you this, and you can meditate on it this week and after the message. It first says, be watchful. Be alert. Make it part of your conscious prayer. Make it part of your conscious thought. God, could this be a factor going on in relation to me, in relation to my boss, in relation to my kids, in relation to my setting today? And how do I need to then pray about that? And the second step is simply pray. And we can, it can be as simple as how Jesus taught us to pray. The Lord's Prayer says what? Lord, deliver us from evil. And a lot of times we get stuck in thinking about demonic and we think about exorcism and all these great grand displays. But you know what? The vast, vast majority of our spiritual battle is fought in this way. It's simply fought in the opposite spirit, the spirit of Jesus instead of the spirit of evil. If we want to fight against covenant breaking in our community, because covenant breaking is a stronghold in our community, let's face it, it is. If we want to fight against that, we fight against it by acting faithfully in all areas of our life by taking people who are struggling with unfaithfulness and walking alongside them and helping them become faithful. We, we fight it that way. If we want to fight against gossip, we fight against it by turning the channel when, when some of the shows go from nice little biographies to juicy tidbits that nobody knows whether it's true or not, but they like to say it because it makes headlines and makes everybody go, Ooh, I can't believe they did that. And we just turn the channel. We learn to treat Facebook and email and other things with healthy suspicion and we're careful not to forward things and talk about things that we don't know are really true or not. And even if they are true and they're negative, what's the purpose? Because the Bible instructs us to don't, don't talk about anything that doesn't build other people up. In politics, in life, in conflict, we treat others fairly and kindly. I don't care if we disagree with Obama or Romney or Kasich or Reid or the mayor or whoever it is in politics. I don't care if we disagree with them, but we treat them with a fair kindness. We understand their position. We represent their position honestly and fairly. We don't represent a portion of it to make them look look bad, but don't give the full picture. We represent them fairly. And we speak even in our disagreement kindly, not sarcastically, not demeaningly, of them? Will that change our nation? It could if we'll start acting that way and teach our kids to act that way and lead our friends to act that way. 
it could change our nation and we could actually get million dollar answers to million dollar questions instead of two dollar answers to million dollar questions in our life I'm way over I tried to be shorter I'm longer let's pray Lord I pray first of all that you would help us to move past the simplistic reductionist views that we are so tempted to have because that's what our culture has, that would like to dismiss this, that would like to believe it's relegated to uh, far off, if at all. Lord, that you would, you would free us and that you would give each of us discernment that as we seek to follow you, be led by your Spirit to be watchful, that you, Lord, would give us discernment, that we can trust you to lead us into preaching the gospel, healing the sick, and casting out demons in a way that is safe because we're led by you, in a way that is sane because we're led by you, in a way that shows grace to us for our foolishness because we will be foolish sometimes and yet still allow us to learn and stay engaged. Lord, that we would win this battle as a public spectacle like you have won this battle. Lord, deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Deliver our community from evil. Deliver our state from evil. Deliver our nation from evil. Deliver this world from evil. And Lord, help us to be a part of that. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you sense throughout this time, because I trust that God's going to be bringing things to mind, that there is an area that you need prayer over because there may be this involved. We're not going to assume you're demonized if you come for prayer. And I got a laugh on that in the first service. And actually that laugh actually shows us a little bit, doesn't it, how uncomfortable we are with this. How unnormal we treat it when God says it's normal. And we need to be aware of it. And we need to engage it. So I want to encourage you to get prayer. If God spoke to you or put his finger on something and you go, I think this is that, get prayer. God bless. Have a great week.